Well, it's become known as one of the most infamous conflicts in American history. And no, Olin, I'm not talking about the argument you had with Bev last week. It was the famous feud between the Hatfields and the McCoys. How many of you have heard of the the Hatfields and the McCoys? It was a feud that lasted over 30 years, between 1861 and 1891. And over the course of this 30-year feud, dozens of family members on both sides were killed. It was a feud characterized by anger and jealousy and revenge. And it was so, so devastating that even the, the federal government had to send military troops in to help bring an end to it. Dozens of people lost their lives. Tens and tens of scores of people in the families were imprisoned as a result of this. People were hanged. It was crazy. And it all stemmed over an act of revenge from a stolen pig. 30 years, dozens of lives lost. Now, we don't all experience conflict like the feud between the Hatfields and the McCoys. But the reality is all of us know strife and conflict in our lives and our relationships. Strife and conflict is something that's common to all of us, whether it be in our families, our marriages, with our children, maybe a neighbor, friends, coworkers. All of us know the reality of having conflict in our relationships with others. And, and last week in our study in the book of James, you'll recall we, we ended our sermon last week where James encouraged us that God calls us as his people to be peacemakers. He wants us to, to be peacemakers who reap a harvest of righteousness as people see the difference that Christ has made in our lives. And so, so if our lives, friends, are characterized by strife and, and conflict jealousy, anger, revenge, these kinds of things. This is not the kind of life that God desires for his people. And it's not the kind of life that's going to produce that harvest of righteousness that God wants for us to produce as as people see the joy in us walking with the Lord. And so this morning, as we look again at the book of James, as we turn to chapter 4, James today is going to help us get to the source of our conflicts and strife. He's going to help us recognize the source. Where do conflict and strife come from? But more than that, he's also going to reveal to us the cure for these things so that we don't have to be caught in this ongoing cycle of conflict and strife. But but God has given us truth that we can apply to our lives to help us push through and overcome those conflicts that are so common to each and every one of us. This morning, I want to read our passage. We're going to be in James chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn, follow along with me. It'll be on the screen as well. But we're going to read James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12 today. And then we're going to come back and we're going to look at both the the source of our conflicts and strife, but then also the cure for our conflicts and strife. So let's read this passage together today, starting in chapter uh, chapter 4, verse 1. James says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? 
Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think that scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely, but he gives more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Here in this passage, James reveals to us both the cause and the cure for the conflict and strife in our lives. James says that there are two main reasons for the conflicts and strife that we experience. The first of these two reasons, the first of these causes for our strife, James reveals is our misplaced desire. In verses one through three, we see James speaking of the reality of misplaced desire in our hearts. He begins this passage with with a question that many of us might consider the answer to as obvious. James says, brothers, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Well, that's easy. They do. It's their fault. It's her fault, and it's his fault, and those guys over there, their fault. Friends, isn't that true? Isn't that our common temptation to to be quick to point fingers at others for the cause of the conflicts in our lives? When it comes to conflict and strife, the question of who's to blame, our natural inclination is to declare it's their fault. You know, if they would just listen to reason, if they weren't so bossy, if they were just more, more caring and compassionate, then we wouldn't have any trouble at all. Have you ever thought that way? Friends, if we're being honest with ourselves this morning, I think that all of us would have to say that we're often quick to place the blame for our conflicts at the feet of others. But in our passage this morning, James corrects this finger-pointing tendency in us by informing us that when it comes to the conflicts in our lives, the problem isn't with everyone else. The problem's with us. James says the cause lies within us. Let me read verses one and two again this morning. James says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. See, friends, James says here that we've got a problem. We have these evil desires that battle within us. We are sinful by nature. Now, now that's not a, a truth that our world likes to hear. That's not a politically correct statement today, but the reality is, friends, all of us are sinners. You are born a sinner. You don't have to teach a little kid how to sin. They know how to sin instinctively. 
It's part of our fallen nature. And, and so when we don't get our way, or when we don't get what we want or what we think we deserve, that's when conflict tends to rear its ugly head. And James uses some strong language to describe the conflict that we're prone to. He says we covet, we fight and quarrel, we even kill. Now the reality of us here is most of us don't really commit literal murder. But remember, friends, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 21 and 22, that even harboring anger in our heart towards our brother is a form of murder. So the first thing we need to understand this morning is that the seed of the conflict in our life is our sinful desire, which battles within us. All of us are fallen. All of us are sinners. And this sin leads to conflict. We are broken and corrupt. And when we don't get our way, more often than not, we put others in the crosshairs. This past Wednesday, I was here at church in the morning working on my sermon. I was halfway done with my sermon prep, and all of a sudden, the monitor on my laptop where I was working completely went black. I lost everything. I couldn't see anything on my computer. I plugged it in, I recharged, nothing happened, restarted it, and I'm just like frustrated beyond all words at this point. I ended up driving down to Rosedale to the Apple store and stand in line for an hour to to get help, and then I find out it's going to be a two-hour wait after that, and Kim and Addie were with me at the time, and uh, I'm just getting more and more frustrated. And time's going by, and I'm looking at the clock, and I'm thinking I'm losing all this time in sermon prep. And I'm, you know, muttering these angry words under my breath. And, and then Kim asked me some simple question about where we wanted to go eat. And I just snapped at her out of frustration. I made some snark, sarcastic comment. Now, I know you guys are thinking, hey, I thought Pastor Jason was perfect. I'm, I'm not, all right? I hate to break it to you. And, and I had to apologize to my wife. But the reality was, that lashing out at my wife, it wasn't about her. It was about my selfish, sinful desires battling within me. It was about my own frustration. It was about my being upset and angry that it was taking three hours to get my computer looked at. And as is so often the case when it comes to conflict, others fall into our crosshairs. Now, James goes on to say that our selfish desires not only lead to strife with others, but they'll also distort our relationship with God. So so the sinful desires that battle within us don't just have a tendency to provoke conflict in our relationships with others, but they have a tendency to provoke conflict and strife in our relationship with God. And James says we see this especially in our prayer lives. Take a look at verses 2 and 3 again. James says, You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. James says that the person who's being driven by selfish pursuits is not only displaying a lack of faith in God. In other words, they don't really trust that he's going to provide for their needs. But more than that, when they do pray, their prayers are all about them. God simply becomes the the heavenly waiter in the sky who's supposed to cater to all of our whims and desires. 
Hey, garçon, I could use a raise over here. Waiter, come over here and help me out here. I got some trouble with my family. Yeah, I, I know, I haven't talked to you in weeks, but I could sure use you right now. Have you ever had that kind of attitude in your prayer life? You haven't talked to God in weeks, and yet all of a sudden when a need arises, when some desire arises, all of a sudden God's your buddy again. Hey, hey buddy, remember me? That's the kind of misdirected prayer that James is talking about. And what a far cry from the way that Jesus taught us to pray. Remember when the disciples came to Jesus and they asked the Lord to, to teach them how to pray, Matthew 6, 9 through 13, Jesus taught his disciples, this is then how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Jesus taught his disciples to pray, your will be done. Your will be done. Friends, I want you to remember this this morning. Prayer isn't about getting God to do for us what we want. It's about aligning our lives and desires with what he wants. See, when you come to understand that, that'll make your prayer life so much more rewarding and so much more effective. Prayer is not about getting God to do what we want. It's about our aligning our lives and desires with what he wants for us. That's why Jesus taught us to pray, your will be done. Now, this doesn't mean that we should never go to God asking for anything. Okay? Not at all. The Bible is full of prayers of, of appeal and supplication. The key, though, in our prayer life is, is, is a, it's about the attitude of our hearts. Are we approaching God in humility when we go to him with our requests? Do we trust him? No matter how he might reply, do we trust him believing that his will is always faithful and good, even when he doesn't answer the prayers the way that we think he should? You see, friends, that's the kind of prayer that honors God. And that's the kind of prayer that God will honor. It's about an attitude of humility when we approach our Heavenly Father. Now, James says that there's one more significant source of strife in our lives. In addition to our misplaced desires, James also says that we are prone to misdirected devotion. See, we can get our desire wrong, but we can also get our devotion wrong. Let me read verses four through five. James says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think that scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? Friends, James is saying here that God is a jealous God. He wants us to be reminded of that. He wants us to know that clearly. And not only is God a jealous God, but James says that the Holy Spirit that lives within us envies intensely. What does that Holy Spirit within us envy? Well, friends, you need to understand this this morning. God wants you. He wants your time. He wants your devotion. He wants your love. He wants your attention. He wants your dedication. God envies intensely. He is a jealous God. 
He longs for you. And this just isn't some petty jealousy, but it's a jealousy that's rooted in a love that's proven itself in devotion and action. Remember Romans 5.8, God proved his love for us in this, in that while we were still sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. See, God is a jealous God, but it's not a petty jealousy. It's a jealousy rooted in the deepest love we could ever know or experience. And you need to understand this morning that God is wholly committed to you. He wants nothing more for you than your ultimate joy. He's 100% sold out in love with you. There's nobody else that could love you like God. But sadly, James says that we are adulterous lovers. You adulterous people. That's James' indictment. Ten years ago, right before I came here to Lakes Free, I was being pursued by another church in the Twin Cities to go and serve as their senior pastor. And as we found out more about this church, we discovered that the senior pastor who was no longer with them had recently had an affair. One day his wife came home early from work and she discovered her husband in bed with another woman from their church, a friend of hers. It was devastating. Totally destroyed the family, totally devastated the church. The the, the pain of adultery, it's heart-wrenching. I've been told by friends who have gone through it that it's like being punched in the gut and you just can't catch your breath. And it's this imagery that James invokes to describe our betrayal of God. Instead of honoring him in faithfulness, too often our devotion is misdirected towards worldly pursuits and desires. And friends, God takes this betrayal seriously. Whenever we forsake the true love of our Heavenly Father to climb into bed with the world in pursuit of our selfish interests or selfish desires, James says that we become an enemy of God. That is serious language. Now you've got to understand this today, friends. If you're not at peace with God, you're not going to be at peace. See, it's like those great harbors that we have up on the North Shore in Duluth and Superior. Right? When, when those large ships come inside the harbor, they're safe, they're secure. The, the waves and the storms won't affect them at all. But outside the harbor, on the open water, that's where they're tossed and turned. That's where the wind and the waves beat and batter them. And it's the same way in our walk with the Lord, friends, when we draw close to our Heavenly Father, when we live faithfully with Him, when we stay secure in the harbor of His love, we know peace, we know joy, we know contentment and security. But when we stray and pursue worldly desires and selfish interests, James calls this adultery, and it leads to conflict and strife. See, God is a jealous lover, And the reality is this morning, we can either be friends with the world or we can be friends with God, but we can't be both. And so you got to make a choice. God won't have it. He won't share us with another. And so the question this passage should provoke in us this morning is, where is my devotion today? 
Where is my commitment today? Am I inviting God's opposition or am I indulging in his love here this morning? Those are challenging questions for us to consider. See, James wants us to know this morning that if our lives are characterized by conflict and strife, we need to take a long, hard look in the mirror because it's our misplaced desires and it's our misdirected devotion that leads to these conflicts and strife so often. The real problem lies within our hearts. We're sinful people and we're prone to wander. Now, fortunately, it's not all bad news this morning. Okay, James has, has shown us the, the trouble we're in and the reality of the, the seriousness of our sin. But now James is going to move from talking about the cause of our conflict and strife to revealing to us the cure for our conflict and strife. And the cure for strife, friends, is we need to be people of hope. We need to be people of hope. I put this into four simple statements for you this morning using the acronym HOPE. They all come out of the book of James. What's a person of hope look like? James gives us four keys, four keys to being a person of hope. Somebody who is able to move through the causes of conflict and strife to understanding peace and and joy and reconciliation. James says, number one, that we need to humble ourselves before God. If you're going to be a person of hope, you need to humble yourself before the Lord. Our family has a cabin up in northern Wisconsin, just, uh, just outside of Spooner. And uh, outside of Spooner, there's an artesian spring that flows. And it's an incredible spring. We stop there to get fresh drinking water often, and we fill up these jugs of water, sometimes bring them home with us. It's the best tasting water you've ever had. And this spring is absolutely incredible. It just pours and pours and pours out water. It just flows nonstop, 365 days a year, 24 hours a day. I timed it one time. It flows at a rate of over 10 gallons per minute. It just gushes out pure fresh water year round. Even in the winter, there'll be big ice mounds forming up all around this spring. And it just keeps flowing and flowing and flowing. And friends, this is what James tells us God is like. This is what the grace of God is like. James says that God gives more grace. And he gives more grace. And he gives more grace. And it just keeps flowing and flowing and pouring out. And he lavishes us with more and more grace. Look at verses 6 and 7 again. James says, but he gives us more grace. This is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. See, it's very interesting. This is what God is like. But here's the deal. Just like that spring, see, if you're going to get the water from the spring, you know what you need to do? You need to stoop down low to get it because it's got a spigot that comes out. And so you got to stoop low to get that water. And it's the same way in our relationship with God. We can't approach God on our terms. We can't approach God as if he's some heavenly waiter in the sky just waiting to to answer our call whenever we need. We need to humble ourselves before our heavenly father. We need to stoop low before God in humility, recognizing the, the, the depth of our depravity and sin. And we need to approach God as our righteous king. But James tells us that when we humble ourselves before God, 
God gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble, and he is pleased to lavish his grace upon us. So the first key to to overcoming strife and conflict in your life, you need to humble yourself before God. Secondly, James tells us we need to oppose the devil. We need to oppose the devil. Now understand this, this my friends, the devil is a real being. The devil is a real being. And the Bible tells us that his sole motivation, Jesus says in John 10, the devil's sole motivation is to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants to steal your joy in the Lord. He wants to kill your hope as you fall into sin. And he lies to you and tells you that there's no way back. And then he wants to destroy your soul by getting you to walk away from the Lord in rebellion. That's his whole motivation. 1 Peter 5.8 tells us he's like a roaring lion that prowls around looking for someone to devour. This is our adversary. This is what we're up against. The threat of the enemy is real, folks. But at the same time, James says that we can resist him. This enemy who wants nothing more than to provoke and, and, and stir up conflict in our lives, James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. How do we resist him? We resist him by submitting ourselves to God. In other words, we need to draw close to the one who sends the devil running. See, friends, there's only one spirit that I know of who's greater than all the other spirits out there. And that's the Holy Spirit that lives within us. And if the Holy Spirit lives within you, friends, and you're drawing close to the Holy Spirit, the devil can't gain a foothold in your life. He has to flee from you. It's just like when you stand up to a bully. I'm sure all of us have faced bullies in our lives, or we see them on the news and some of the world leaders that are out there, right? How do you face down a bully, friends? You can't negotiate with a bully. You have to stand up to a bully. You have to stand up to a bully and confront them. I remember when I was in high school, my junior year, back at Eden Prairie High School, every winter we had this broomball league and uh, teams would form. And it wasn't aff- affiliated with the school. It was all student directed. And so basically for a lot of kids, it became an excuse to party and go play broomball. But, uh, but we had these broomball teams and we'd play broomball every Friday night. And we'd, you know, all week long, we'd be talking trash against our buddies on the other teams. And there was this one team at our school, they were called the Posse. And they were a bunch of ex-jocks big, tough guys who were basically now just a bunch of bullies. And they used broomball basically as an excuse to go out and drink, and then they'd come to the broomball rink, and they'd basically try to start fights with everybody. That's what they were all about. And they, they would scare and intimidate all these other teams. Well, my friends and I, we had a broomball team, and these guys kept challenging us to a game. And, you know, when you're in high school, right, if you don't, <laughs> if you don't stand up to the challenge, you know, then your, your honor's that question, right? And so finally, after ducking these guys for months, we finally decided, okay, we got to go, go play the posse. Well, we knew what was going to happen. These guys were just going to come out and start beating on us. Well, I had a buddy, I played football at Eden Prairie. I had a buddy who had just transferred to our school that year. His name was Leroy McFadden. And let me tell you, he was as tough as his name. He was this big, strong kid. He had just moved here from Michigan, six foot four, solid muscle. In fact, he went on to play running back at Michigan State for a couple of years. I mean, this guy was big. So I asked Leroy, I said, hey, Leroy, I, I know you've probably never played broomball in your life, 
coming from inner city Detroit. But, but uh, you know, Leroy, would you come out and just, you know, be on our team? We're playing against these guys, and they're just big, tough bullies. And, you know, and Leroy said, yeah, I'll come out and play with you, Jason. So we got Leroy out on the ice with us. And you want to know what happened, friends? The first time one of those bullies on that other team came to try to check one of my buddies and knock his teeth out, I'll tell you what, Leroy stood up to them and sent them running in a hurry. See, friends, in the same way, having my buddy Leroy on our team made all the difference against those bullies that we were playing. With the Holy Spirit on our side, with Jesus Christ on our side, the devil will flee. He wants nothing to do with him. Whatever power or influence the devil may have over you today, let me tell you, the power of Christ in you is greater. The power of Christ in you is greater. 1 John 4, 4 says, Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Resist the devil, draw close to Christ, and the enemy is going to flee from you. Okay? If the enemy is stirring up conflict and strife in your life and in your relationships, resist the devil, draw close to Christ, and the enemy is going to flee from you. That's just the truth. Okay? He wants nothing to do with the king of the universe who's on your side. What a blessing that is, isn't that? Thirdly, this morning, James says that we need to purify our hearts. Let me read verses 8 through 10 again. James says, Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. What is James talking about here in these verses? These verses can be summed up in one word, repentance. James is talking about repentance. And what does repentance look like? Look again at verse 8. James says, come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Friends, that's what repentance is about. Genuine repentance is about both outward action and an inner attitude of our hearts. You remember the, the parable of the prodigal son, right? This prodigal son rebelled against his father, moved away from home, finds himself feeding pigs, wallowing in the pigsty. And as the prodigal son is wallowing in the pigsty, he has this realization. He says, the servants back at my father's house have it even better than I do. And so he has this change of attitude. He has this change of heart. But friends, the prodigal son would have never experienced the father's embrace if he first didn't get out of that pigsty and wash himself off before going home to his father. See, it was more than just about a change of heart. It was about outward cleansing. It was about outward transformation. And that's what true repentance looks like, friends. James says it's not just about what goes on in our heart, but it's about what goes on in our actions, in our life. And as James has told us all along in our series this summer, just as real faith acts, real repentance will lead to a true change in our behavior. That's what real repentance is. But even more, James goes on in verse 9 to make clear that true repentance will also be characterized by sorrow. In other words, genuine repentance will express itself in deep mourning over sin as we recognize the incredible nature of God's grace and love for us. I came across a story just this week of this little girl. She was four years old and she had this rare blood disorder. And she needed a transfusion in order to save her life. And so the doctors, they went to her older brother who was eight years old. He had also had this rare condition, but he had overcome it. 
And so the doctors went to this little boy and his parents and they said, would you be willing to give your blood for your sister? And the little boy thought about it for a minute and he looked at his mom and dad. And then he said, yeah, I'll do it. And the day of the transfusion came and they wheeled the little boy into the hospital room and he had tears running down his cheeks and his mom said, oh, you're going to be okay. It's all right. And the little boy just had this somber look on his face as they wheeled him in next to his sister to prepare for the transfusion. The the doctors began to draw the blood from his arm and it started flowing over to his sister. And the little boy looked over at his mom and dad and he said, Mom, Dad, I love you. And tears were running down his cheeks. And the mom and dad said, We love you too. We're so proud of you. And a few seconds later, the little boy looked over at the doctor and he said, Doctor, how much longer till I die? And there was an audible gasp amongst everybody in the room. You see, this little boy thought that he was literally giving his life in order to save his sister. That is in love, friends. That is grace. And that's what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. See, that little boy didn't really have to give his life, but there was one who did, Jesus Christ. And you see, our plight as sinners was so desperate that only the ultimate sacrifice of God's own son in his shed blood on the cross of Calvary could wash and cleanse and purify us of our sin. Sadly, though, most of us take Christ's sacrifice far too cheaply. And we view our sin as if it's just some trivial nuisance or just a temporary pause in an otherwise faithful walk with God when the reality is our sin is adultery. It's the pigsty of the prodigal. It's the cancer that's eating us from the inside. It's the cave that we're trapped in with no way out. And when we recognize the depth of our depravity, it should drive us to our knees in humility and godly sorrow. That's true repentance, friends. Now you might be thinking, well, wait a minute, Jason. I, I thought the Christian life was about, was about joy and happiness and peace and contentment. Friends, absolutely it is. But you need to understand this morning to experience that joy, we first need to get low so that God can lift us up. You know, one of my favorite things that we do here at Lakes Free is every couple years we have the Teen Challenge Choir come out. And I love hearing those testimonies. They're so powerful because the reality is these are people who have experienced the the depths of their sin. And they've been totally broken and humbled by the reality of their sin and the, the truth of God's immense grace and love for them. And they stand up here and they just sing and praise the Lord in joy. One of our brothers here at Lakes Free, Ben Magler. Man, I had him over at my house. He's a professional tree trimmer. I had him over at my house this past week. He was helping me out with something. That guy is just overflowing with joy. Where does it come from? It comes from his recognition of how low he had fallen in his sin. And just how incredible God's grace was in lifting him up. See, friends, that's where a heart of true repentance comes from. 
Lastly, this morning, James tells us that we need to express life and love. Verse 11 and 12, brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? James says slander and self-righteous judgmentalism have no place amongst God's people. Okay? James isn't saying that judgment is ever wrong. A biblically-based judgment is right and good. In fact, this whole passage is all about judgment, right? James is talking about a self-righteous judgmentalism, the person who ignores the log in their own eye while pointing out the speck in their brothers or sisters. Now, at first glance, these last two verses might seem out of place. I mean, why is James all of a sudden moving from talking about our relationship with God to now going back to the topic of our tongue or our speech? Well, you need to remember, friends, as Jesus said that it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth will speak. And so, in other words, James is reminding us that one of the primary indicators of a right relationship with God will be the language we use and the words we say to others. And so here's the thing this morning. If your speech is characterized by slander, okay, if you're slandering or speaking ill of other people consistently, or if you're regularly passing judgment on other people, hypocritical, self-righteous judgmentalism, right? If that's the kind of person you are, if that's how your speech is known, then you really need to ask the question, is my heart truly right with God? Because that's not how a person whose heart is right with the Lord talks. That's just the the plain truth of it. Out of the overflow of your heart, your mouth will speak. James has made this clear in previous weeks. When your heart is right with God, the truth will be evident in your speech. You're not going to be a person known for slander and self-righteous judgmentalism, but you'll be known as someone who speaks life and love and words of hope into the lives of others. See, friends, that's what a person of hope looks like. A person of hope is someone who's humbled themselves before the Lord. Someone who opposes the devil by drawing close to the one who can cause him to flee. Someone who purifies their hearts, not only outwardly, but externally, seeking to honor God in our lives and in our actions. And then that is going to ultimately display and evidence itself through our speech the words we use. That's the kind of person James encourages us to be. That's a person of hope. And that's a person who will experience increasing victory over conflict and strife in their life, right? If you want to overcome the conflicts and strife that are so prevalent in our world today, there's only one way to do it. You need to be a person of hope. You need to draw near to Jesus in humility. Let him do that work of transformation in your heart. It starts in your heart. And then that will manifest itself in relationships of peace and joy. What kind of person do you want to be this morning? Let me close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these powerful truths in the book of James. We thank you for speaking these words of, of uh, challenge into our lives. Lord, we need your challenge. We need you to, to prod us and, and pr- provoke us to repentance, Lord. We have these sinful desires that battle within us. And so we need your spirit to do his work of transformation, Lord. And so I just pray that each and every one of us here 
today as we examine our hearts, as we examine our relationships and our lives, if, if, we, if we find that they're characterized by conflict and strife, Lord, let us get low in humility and draw near to you in repentance, seeking your joy, your grace, your peace. And, and Lord, do that transforming work, Lord. Cause the devil to flee in any of his influences in our lives. And we ask, Lord, that you would transform us into peacemakers people who express life and love in our relationships. We want our lives to be characterized by hope, Lord. And so we ask for your help in this. We need your grace. Jesus, you are the one and only who can save us and show us the way. And so we ask for your help. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.